Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Over the last four weeks, we have discussed different spiritual practices or habits that make space for God to connect with us, allowing the ordinary moments of life to become holy ground. At the same time, we have also journeyed a bit through the book of John, experiencing deeply personal encounters that Jesus had with individuals that illustrate God's great desire to be present with us. Through moments like Jesus' simple invitation to his new disciples as he walked by, come and see. As he sits with Nicodemus late at night, helping this seeking religious leader to broaden his understanding of his relationship with God. And as Jesus notices the crippled man at the pool of Bethsaida and asks him what it is that he needs, we see a God who is not distant, who does not only wait to be sought out, but who meets people where they are at. The conversation that Jesus has at the well with the Samaritan woman is another one of these moments. But in order for us to understand the powerful significance behind this moment, we first need to understand what is very wrong with this scene according to ancient Jewish cultural standards. The first red flag is actually named by the woman right in the passage. She is a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew. The history between the Jews and the Samaritans is a long and tense one. Generations before, the Assyrians conquered Israel and most of the Jewish people were exiled. However, even as the pagan Assyrian people came to live in their newly conquered territory, a very small group of Jews were allowed to remain. These Jews over time married Assyrians and had children, and when the exiled Jews were freed and returned to their homeland, they found these half-Jews and dubbed them as less than. They became known as Samaritans. Though the Samaritans too worshipped God, the Jews did not want to worship with them. And so the Samaritans built their own temple at Mount Gerizim, a point of contention the Samaritan woman actually later refers to. The divide between the groups is actually so deep that even passing through Samaria, though passing through Samaria was the most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem, many Jews would go around by the longer and steeper road. Not only does Jesus choose to pass through Samaria, but he stops there and engages a Samaritan in conversation. Red flag number one. The second red flag. Not only is she a Samaritan, an ethnic group that a good Jew would avoid, but she is also a woman. In a patriarchal society, a man was not likely to engage a woman in public conversation. As a male religious leader, the expectation for Jesus to avoid the woman would have been even greater. To engage her in conversation was to risk tainting his reputation with assumptions of immorality, thus ruining his public influence. And yet, that doesn't seem to give Jesus any pause. Red flag number two. The third red flag, in addition to being the wrong ethnicity and gender, the woman is of bad reputation. She has had five husbands, and the man she lives with at this time, she is not married to. She was an outcast even among her own people. It's unusual that she came to the well for water around noon, the hottest part of the day. 
the other women in the neighborhood would have come earlier in the day when it was cooler. It seems she tried to come to the well at a time of day when she was less likely to encounter others and less likely to receive their judgmental glances and whispers. That's why we're here outside of Stop and Shop today. Perhaps not for exactly the same reasons, but have you ever gone to the grocery store at a time of day when you knew or at least hoped you wouldn't see anyone else you knew? Maybe you had raced out the door on a Saturday morning wearing your pajamas and just wanted to get some milk before anyone noticed you. This well was the community watering hole and Jesus met her here. Another ordinary moment that became holy ground. A Samaritan, her race, a woman, her gender, a bad reputation, her lifestyle, three red flags. What a contrast to Jesus' last conversation partner in the chapter just before. Nicodemus was highly observant of religious law. He was male. He was a Jew of respected rank, a man with no red flags. But Jesus is remarkably at home in both conversations. Remarkably himself, his purpose always the same. Jesus' disciples, however, are scandalized when they return from town to find him speaking with this woman. Despite all of their time with Jesus, watching him ignore and purposefully cross over all cultural boundaries, they still bring their hierarchical prejudices with them. While Jesus makes it clear that this living water, this salvation that he offers, the new kingdom he comes to establish is for anyone, regardless of gender, geography, racial, and moral background. woman is not merely a prop with which Jesus makes a statement. Jesus interacts with her in her own right as a unique person with a unique history and special longings. Simply put, Jesus loved her and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to let her know that she was loved. Much of their conversation revolves around questions of identity. Who is she? And who is Jesus? The woman's shock at Jesus speaking with her actually shows in verse 9. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? In other words, don't you know who I am? Maybe you want to reconsider the risk you are taking by being seen with me. It feels both resigned and accepting of the baggage, both her own and the culture's, that keeps her separated from others. It also feels a bit like a defense mechanism meant to keep this Jewish man at arm's length. She knows how he should feel about her and how he should treat her as a result, and she was hoping to avoid that today. Jesus' response reassures her enough to keep her from leaving and also sparks some curiosity. Jesus replied, 
if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. In other words, if you only knew who I really was, not just who you assume I am, then you would know that I can offer you something very different than the derision and distance you've received from others. Using the language of water, Jesus offers her a new way of being, a life outside of the temporal one that she is trapped by. She responds with excitement. She is ready to receive that offer, but there is an important step that Jesus does not want her to miss. He wants to shine a light on that which has kept her separated from God and from others. So he kind of begins to pry. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. They always find this conversation a little bit comical. It's like the little kid who eats the chocolate cake and when caught says, what cake? Or look over there while trying to wipe chocolate frosting off their chin. At first, she tries to obscure the truth from Jesus. Understandably so, the conversation has touched a sore spot. So she deflects, shifting the conversation to something else entirely, preferably a topic not specific to her. We have all been there. But Jesus is not trying to be cruel here and asking her to be honest about facts she'd rather avoid. But he knows that in order for her to receive his offer of pure living water, she will first need to get rid of the stagnant, stale water she's been living off of all this time. Jesus' offer requires more from her than just intellectual assent. Yes, I want the water. It involved a reshaping of her relationships and a new sensitivity to her behavior. In a space where she is deeply known and deeply cared for, Jesus is inviting her to vulnerability, to honest reflection without denial of how she ended up where she is. But Jesus doesn't just change her life here. She says, sir, you must be a prophet. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. The Samaritan woman is amazed. Who is this man who has such knowledge of her life and yet still doesn't reject her? Being deeply known and still deeply accepted releases her from denial and shame. Jesus has gotten to the root of her need, not shying away from the parts she'd rather hide, but broadens her understanding of God, seeking to restore her to full relationship with God and others. And now, the same woman who came to the well at noon to avoid just the other women in her neighborhood, raises back to share with her entire village the experience she's just had. As a result, a whole community, a whole Samaritan community, is changed as they too encounter Jesus. Our answers to essential questions of identity, who am I, who is God, and how does he feel about me, those answers shape how we live our lives. As the Samaritan woman shared space, 
shared a drink, and shared a conversation with Jesus, her role in, her perspective on, and her relationships in her community changed. Where before there were man-made cultural barriers, now there was commonality in the seeking and the worship of Jesus, the Messiah who would save them all. In fact, Jesus is very clear that this was his goal. Earlier in their conversation, the woman asked, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus responds, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Jesus doesn't call out the Samaritans saying, the time will come when you Samaritans will worship where and how we Jews do. But rather, he says, true worshipers, uniting Jews and Samaritans alike in common worship of the Father. He is saying that the true worshipers are not known by their place of worship, but by the Spirit's presence among them. He says the time has come for them to see themselves no longer as Jew and Samaritan, but as a third race of people who worship in a new way together. The ancient Jews were very careful about with whom they ate or drank. It was said that to share a meal was to share a life. In sharing a drink with a Samaritan woman, Jesus made it abundantly clear that he came to establish a new faith community that transcended race, gender, and every other cultural hierarchy and division. In college, I participated in a semester program studying outdoor education. We were in this little cohort with 12 other students from different universities. And I'm not gonna lie, we really struggled to get along. For a month, we backpacked the Colorado Trail together. And when I say together, I mean there was no escaping each other. Hours of hiking a day followed by cramming four or five of us like sardines in sleeping bags under a tarp at night. Four weeks after meeting and we knew each other's every annoying habit down to who farted in their sleep. The physical challenge of the trip quickly revealed our differences, our different goals and reasons for being there. Our different priorities, backgrounds, and even personalities often caused conflict. So that we didn't have to deal with our differences, we formed these little subgroups, sticking closer to the people we knew we got along with. Then we returned to Massachusetts and finished out our classes together, living in a house off campus. As part of a class on environmental sustainability, we received a CSA share from a local community garden. Each week, a massive box of very strange vegetables was delivered to our doorstep. Huge stocks of Swiss chard, which is not cheese, we learned. Bok choy, rutabaga, all sorts of different squash. We had a very big cooking challenge on our hands to find ways to utilize all these different vegetables and not let them go to waste. We determined that we were essentially going to have to become vegetarians, focusing on using up all these vegetables in our communal meals. And the process of bringing together these misfit vegetables to create some really unusual meals brought our community together in a way that surviving 100 miles on trail and cold Colorado nights had not. Trust me, it was no magic fix. Our differences certainly didn't disappear, 
where it brought some moments of shared laughter when recipes went awry. And we extended each other a whole lot more grace on the days it was someone's turn to cook. In that kitchen and surrounding that table, we had a new shared value that was greater than the things we used to keep each other at arm's length. Today, we share a meal much like that. The corporate practice of communion is a spiritual practice that shapes us not primarily as individuals, but as a community. Let's think back to the very first communion meal when Jesus infused new meaning into the traditional Passover meal for his disciples. Covenant pastor Dave Swanson in his book, Rediscipling the White Church, reminds us that no sooner has Jesus served the cup than an argument breaks out. Over what you ask? Well, hierarchy. Just like we saw in their shock in seeing Jesus at the well with a Samaritan woman, the disciples still cling to these norms of power, status, and the way things have always been. Which of us will be the most important in your new kingdom, Jesus, they want to know. But Jesus says, among you, it's going to be different. Those with power will choose to give it away and become the ones who serve. Watch like me. This is the same meal at which Jesus, God himself, washes his disciples' feet. A new model for community is established by Jesus at the communion table. When we come to the table, we leave behind the cultural waters of every man for himself. When we come to the table, we recognize and repent of the inner programming that seeks first to find the differences between ourselves and others. The tendency to build barriers to protect our ways of thinking, feeling, and living that we are comfortable with. When we come to the table, we shed the man-made identifiers that our individualistic culture bestows upon us. Age, gender, race, class, political affiliation, and more are set aside here. When we come to the table, we all, carefully and lovingly created in the image of God, receive a new and shared identity. We become a new breed. How does this happen? Well, in the celebration of communion, we celebrate the entirety of our shared Christian story. Here we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see a good and loving God who went to extraordinary lengths to restore his beloved but broken creation, that's us, to full relationship with him and each other. As we remember the cross, we lament and confess its necessity, recognizing that we all actively participate in things that grieve God's heart and that separate us from him and others. But as we remember the empty tomb, we rejoice that those things no longer have a claim on us. We are instead freed to live out the powerful new reality that Jesus modeled for us in his life. And finally, we actively anticipate the establishment of the heavenly banquet, when all races, genders, and lifestyles will together celebrate the final reign of God's kingdom of peace and justice. We worship together, we confess together, 
we celebrate together. The spiritual rhythm of coming to the communion table reorients our hearts and lives to the truth of who God is and who we are. Not only who we are as individuals, but the unique community that we become in Christ, therefore, who we are together. We, individuals reconciled to God, form a community reconciled to each other, a community created to be together about the work of reconciliation in our world. Here we are called from one identity and called towards another. Today we share in communion together, though it may not feel very together while we worship online during COVID-19. So much is powerful and special about physically sharing this meal together. The physical sharing of space reminds us very clearly of our shared story, our shared identity, and our shared purpose. While we may miss that experience today, as we have discussed over the last few weeks, our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual selves are not separate. God's kingdom is a tangible reality, and God meets us in ordinary moments, just as often and just as powerfully as in the sacred. Though we do not share this meal in the same location today, Jesus calls us, as he did the Samaritans and the Jews, the time is now to worship in spirit and in truth. Whether you participate in this meal in your living room or on the go, with bread and juice or crackers and water, God meets you where you are at. In this spiritual practice, you are united in identity and purpose with the entire body of Christ across all boundaries. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. I invite you at this time to press pause on the service and gather your elements for communion, crackers, bread, juice, water, whatever you have on hand. When you are ready, you can press play and we will celebrate communion together. Friends, sisters, brothers, welcome to the table. Jesus invites you all, for all are welcome. When we are called to the table, we are called away from something else. We are called away from our brokenness and from our shame, for Christ has redeemed us. We are called away from our sin, for Christ continues to sanctify us. We are called away from our nationality, for in the end, every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship at the feet of the Lamb. We are called away from identities as Democrats or Republicans. We are called away from our identities as men or women. We are called away from our identities as rich or poor or upwardly mobile or urban or suburban or rural. Instead, we are called toward the fellowship and community that is the kingdom of God in which there is neither Greek nor Jew nor American nor Chinese nor Russian nor Nicaraguan nor Nigerian There is nor male nor female, neither slave nor free. For in Christ Jesus, we are all one body made in the image of Jesus to be his children together. This is a meal of remembrance. In this meal, we remember who God is and who we are. 
As we share this meal, we share our very lives with each other. This is the meal we share with fellow believers throughout the world and throughout history. This is the meal that we share with the least and the lost. This is the meal that we share with the oppressed and the persecuted. This is the meal that we share with those whose skin is a different color than ours. This is the meal where we share with those who have different political opinions. This is the meal we share with those who attend different churches or whose worship looks different from ours. This is the meal that calls us to keep the main thing the main thing. While differences tend to distract us and pull us apart, this meal celebrates the beauty of our differences, united together by this one thing, that Jesus, with his body and his blood, paid the cost for our sin. In doing so, he removed all barriers between God and us, between me and you, between all people. Praise God for this good news. Praise God for this moment, this opportunity to reflect, repent, Remember and rejoice.